This is Human Stories with Jill Hazard Rowe, where we explore humanity in all of its realms. Today we have in the studio Lori Lee Hall. Welcome. So glad to be here, Jill. No, I'm so honored and so happy that you're in the studio today. I know that um, she's actually in the studio and she lives in Kentucky. That's right. So I'm glad I was able to, that both of us were able to make some time to do this podcast. I know you're very busy and very popular. And they're always better in person. Oh, yeah. I absolutely, absolutely. I will, I will make my schedule available for anyone that is actually in Salt Lake City because I agree it's better one on one. So we're going to get right back right into it. I'm going to turn it right over to you, Lori Lee. You've listened to the Human Stories podcast, so you know how this works, and it's all yours. So I'll keep going until you make me pause for clarification or yeah, I'll just, something of that I'll nature. Just, yeah. All right. So um, I am Lori Lee Hall. I am a woman with transgender experience. And that's a good portion of what we'll probably talk about today. Um, I'm 61 years old, uh, which means I was born in 1961. It's the only year that that works. Yeah. And uh, I come from uh, central Massachusetts, rural parts of central New England. Um, I experienced gender conflict relating to being transgender as early as age five. Um, had several experiences early in my life where my mom, my parents, others attempted to teach me to be boy-like, to to try to uh, make me the boy that my assignment at birth, my birth sex assignment, um, said that I should be. But from age five on, I've always identified as female. And in the 1960s, that was not something that was well known or understood. And so that'll factor into my story as well. Um, I was fortunate for reasons I've never found out to have been told at age seven that my parents selected and intended to name me Lori Lee had I been assigned female at birth. And so I've known since I was seven years old, now 55 years, um, what my name is that goes with my identity, what, what what my real name should be. And it only took until 2016 to actually make that my legal name. So a long time without, uh, without having that portion of authenticity. Um, I find it interesting as I look back on my experience in history that as a child, I really just wanted people to see me for the girl that I am. And then suddenly, well, or maybe not suddenly, but in terms of a short period of time, puberty hits and so forth, and maybe socialization changes as one moves into middle school and high school. Instead of wanting people to see who I was, I really more than anything wanted to completely hide who I was. Okay. So um, that's a fairly recent discovery on my part as I think about my my desires as a child to be recognized for who I was and then suddenly really hoping nobody could tell <laughs> and needing to 
be extremely careful to ex not expose my identity, my feelings, my sense of self. What do you think? I mean, I know this is a different time. We're talking 60s, 70s. Yeah. But what do you think made the switch from being innocent and wanting people to recognize who you identified as and then real going to total other extreme where you wanted no one to ever think that. I think it's that very thing. It's the innocence of childhood and wanting to be seen for who I was without knowing really that there was a risk for that, that mm -hmm. there was that that there were, you know, people who weren't going to accept that. So did you have no pushback as a child? Oh, I have plenty of pushback. I can remember all the things my mom tried to do to convince me to be boy-like and before she'd give up and not try any longer. But I also knew, I can't remember how I knew, but I knew that um, playing dress up in mom's clothes or playing with Barbies with my sisters and things like that was something I did not let my dad see happen. Mm. But I can't tell you why mm -hmm. I knew that, but I knew it. And so there must have been something taught to me that I've forgotten. Oh, I'm sure not only your dad, but the men you were around and yeah. the culture you were involved in. Yeah. Were you born in the, any kind of religion or? We, uh, we attended the Congregational Church, which in New England is the, is the little white church with the steeple on the green, you know, on the village green. It sounds fabulous. Yes, it's, it's very <laughs> uh, postcard idyllic uh, in the, you know, wintertime. There's a little bit of snow on the ground and, a, you know, horse and sleigh pull by. And yeah, that was my world. As oh, a child, amazing. Um, until about the time they threw me out of the children's choir for being tone deaf. Oh, and, can't help uh, that. Yeah, can't help that. <laughs> Actually, yeah, can't help that. So I, uh, I, I didn't have during my teenage years a religious uh, upbringing, um, and we'll talk about it here in a few minutes. But I was introduced to the LDS Church, you know, mm. the Mormon Church, when I was away to college in my first semester when I was eighteen. But um, in terms of my experience growing up, um, yeah, totally closeted as to my personality. Um, people who knew me then, like my close friend, uh, my younger sister, said that my that I was just always sad. Oh. I was just always sad. And um, I communicated recently with a high school uh, classmate who said, you were very, speaking to me, you were very sweet. And very quiet but contained I thought wow that's pretty perceptive 50 that, years later <laughs> that is a really strong and sad word contained. Yeah, contained and so I lived as a contained teenager um, and I guess it came through loud and clear that that I was that way you'd think I had you know murdered my sister's cat or something and needed to hide that I was hiding something and I was what I was hiding was my true self. Um, from an early age, I was an artist and um, I poured myself into doing artistic work and, uh, and spent as much of my time drawing as possible. Um, I made the decision at age 14 that I was going to be an architect. Um, I'm not quite sure how that happened because I had never seen one before. I'd never met an architect before, had no one to talk to about that. Um, but I was convinced that's what I was going to do. 
And so still lifes and um, various drawings and paintings of other things started to transition during my high school years into drawings of buildings and paintings of buildings and, you know, landscape scenes with lots of buildings in them. And that led me to ultimately being um, accepted into uh, architectural school at Rensselaer Polytechnic in upstate New York. Wow. And so uh, for listeners in the Intermountain West, I laughingly say I went west to go to college, but only <laughs> as far as the Hudson River. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it was there at, um, at Rensselaer in the School of Architecture that I had a classmate who was a Latter-day Saint who shared with me um, a lot about her experiences growing up in the church and gave me a copy of the Book of Mormon and um, introduced me to all of that. And I had special spiritual experiences, of, you know, that turned me on to, to the church and I wanted to be a part of it. But I should also, I'm getting ahead of myself, I should also mention that I made a more conscious decision just before I went off to school to bury everything having to do with my female identity. Um, I had, as is commonly the case with uh, transgender persons, um, even though I was closeted, I had experimented with, with dressing using my mom's clothes and presenting um, to myself in my room with the doors closed and the yeah. lights off, um, trying to find, you know, a place where I could feel whole for a moment. Yeah, so places that you created were always in the dark and yeah. always hidden. Yeah. That's sad, sad commentary. It is, It's but it's real. And one, yeah. on one occasion, I got up the courage to leave my room and to go out the window <laughs> dressed as Lori Lee and in the middle of the night and walked across the backyard and got to the property line. And I thought, where am I going? I don't have a pathway forward here. I don't know what I can do at this point. It's 1979. I knew nothing about transgender people. The word didn't exist. Right. It would have been something less desirable um, of a moniker. Um, but there was, just as I had no place to go crossing the property line and heading off across the field to downtown, there was no pathway forward for a person like myself who experienced gender dysphoria, which I didn't even know what that was, to go forward and to get any support, therapy, help, medical or mental assistance or anything, emotional support. So I turned around and went back to my room, climbed back through the window <laughs> and put it all away. And very shortly thereafter, just before I left for college, I made a commitment to myself that I'm burying this and I'm never going to think about it again. And it's it's just I've got to go be the person now. I, I'm practically an adult. I'm going to university. I've got to be the person the world is telling me that I am. And uh, lo and behold, within a few months, I'm introduced to the LDS Church. Um, it feels good to me spiritually. Uh, answers a lot of questions uh, from, you know, just basic the basic questions in my life. Um, and it provided a clear, very clear pathway forward to be a successful male person because the church 
really helps males to be males. <laughs> yeah, there's a great plan there's for a males. Plan. Exactly. And so you get the priesthood, you go on a mission, you know, you go to the temple, you get married, you raise a family, you're a presider, a husband, a father, and all of these things the church does lay out very clearly for someone like me who needed a pathway forward mm -hmm. in this chosen direction which wasn't authentic but was the safe one for me i'm thinking and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i would think since you're now playing a role in life really mm -hmm. you're not able to be who you identify as at that point no. at that point yeah. or the, i'm thinking back yeah no, when it, you were introduced to the church like having such a prescribed plan it was almost probably comforting because think of you a lot of lead way to think about other things like you're going to do that like you're on this path mm -hmm. Lori Lee and you don't worry we gotcha yeah and so that that was kind of how I the attitude I adopted towards all things church this is my pathway of safety it's the one true path it's the one I'm going to walk and it's the one I'm going to excel at so that people will accept me and like me for what I'm trying to be mm -hmm. and you know, I think, you know, even in my high school years, I was seeking acceptance. And, you know, when I when I develop art projects and win awards for the artwork that I would do, that was a place where I could find acceptance because I was even having a hard time accepting myself mm -hmm. in those days. And so this whole idea of needing to excel, mm -hmm. of driving myself to excel so that I could be accepted kind of continued through my adult life. Like validated from yeah. out outside sources, people, mm -hmm. organizations. The more accolades I could get, the more it numbed the fact that none you of were it- were hurting. Yeah, none of it was <laughs> me, it, yeah. but it was me. I mean, I was doing it, but I wasn't doing it as my authentic as As Lori Lee. Yeah, and you know, maybe in that way, the knowing my name was both a blessing and a curse because I knew who I was. I really- I, That I, is so beautiful that you <laughs> found out that what yeah, your parents were gonna call you and you know, and it just fit and you just kept that. Yeah, it just, it's, it's unique. It's not very common that my peers, uh, you know, having grown up in, in the same time frame, that they knew who the, you know, that what their name was supposed to be. That's not common, Yeah. but it was, it was my circumstance. So. You know, I launch off in becoming the best male priesthood holder, Mormon that I could possibly be. Do you want um, to describe that term priesthood for yeah. our audience members or our Hogan stories um, listeners yeah, that aren't LDS? So in, in, the, uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all worthy, quote unquote, male members of the church above age 12 receive an ordination to a priesthood. And um, by the time one was an adult, as I was when I was uh, 18 and baptized into the church, um, soon thereafter I received um, the office of elder in the priesthood and that authority to um, basically, from the church's perspective, do God's work in the home, in the church, in society, um, to serve as a missionary of the church 
um, as, a, as a male missionary, one holds the priesthood, preside in the home, give blessings and provide service in the church and lead in the church, all come down to this element of priesthood, which is not given to women or girls in the church. So keep that in mind. We'll talk about that more later. Um, so I, I was on path to do all those things. I had three years of architectural training under my belt in a five-year program. I departed Rensselaer and was called on a mission for the church to go to Buenos Aires, Argentina for 18 months to uh, basically introduce people to the Mormon gospel and uh, and to... I like that, the Mormon gospel. The Mormon gospel <laughs> to, to teach and to serve, tell the story of the restoration of the gospel, you know, from Joseph Smith's perspective and... Um, doing so, I learned the Spanish language, which was something I've continued to use throughout my life. I had a great time in general on my mission. I would, it gave me an outlet for service that I liked and for creativity that I always needed to, to be able to offer. Um, I should mention that during this time, I was doing really well keeping my gender identity in the dark and, and packaged in, in that buried condition. I didn't think about it very often, except when I had male roommates at college or male companions on my mission, and I didn't want them to see me dressing. I didn't want to. I, I was not comfortable living with, another, with a young man. Oh, that is so interesting. And... And at the same time, I wasn't thinking about the fact that I'm female, but I was very uncomfortable being around a young man yeah. in those kinds of circumstances. Hmm. And uh, and it wasn't convenient, you know, in college to shower at 3 a.m. so that no one else would see me, you know, that oh, kind of thing, yeah. you know, living in a male dormitory. So you had to, like, do logistics on all those things yeah, yeah. to make yourself comfortable. Yeah, and strange at the time, I, I didn't think the reason you're having this problem, Turkey, is that because you're not male like they are and you're modest and you don't want to be yeah. exposed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, moving along in the story, I, I returned home from my mission. Um, uh, I'd been taught by the mission president and others that the right thing to do is to marry in the temple, you know, find someone to marry in the temple. And mm -hmm. In, in the course of about a year, um, I was able to do that. Um, married a young lady from the ward that I lived in at school. Uh, we were married in the Washington, D.C. temple. And, so uh, you went back to school where you back started? Back at Rensselaer, yeah. Okay. yeah. I had two more years to go. And okay. although I lost my full tuition scholarship by serving a mission, I went back and paid for it out of pocket from there. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, so I... Um, got married in between fourth year and fifth year of architecture school. Um, had a baby on the way the day we were, that I graduated from architecture school. Um, we wound up having four children really quick together. Mm. Um, I got my architectural license and got into practice uh, first in, in Albany, New York. And um, I was, like I say, really good at keeping my female gender identity totally buried. Um, up until the time I started living with a woman again and being married and living with a woman kind of brought those feelings all to the surface again. It's like, I, 
I kind of want, you know, the the life she's living. I kind of want to wear the clothes that she's wearing. I kind of want the things that she has, but no, I can't do that because I'm now the elders quorum president in the ward, you know, which is a priesthood calling serving in you know, the male members of the, of the church congregation. Um, and there were times in these first several years of our marriage that, um, that I cheated and, and found some solace in being able to, to dress authentically. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't about the clothes. A lot of people say, well, what, what on earth? Is this some sort of fetish for certain clothing? Do you like silk? You know, what's the deal here? Yeah. It wasn't that. It was this incredible desire to be seen, even if it was just me looking at me in the mirror, to be seen for who I really am and to get that opportunity in private once in a while seemed to reduce the strain of the conflict that I felt of being the uh, a gender different from my physical biological sex. In those moments, Lori Lee, did it bring you comfort or so many things that were taught and told to do did it bring shame like there was all of those things at once it was um it was relief it was comfort it was euphoria instead of dysphoria and it was it was guilt it was shame it was you know repeated repentance you know exercises and 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 all of those things that you know that we put ourselves through when we think we're doing something we shouldn't be doing right and um which is so unfortunate yeah because in my case i had chosen to bury my identity because i had no way to express it I had chosen the path of being a Mormon elder mm-hmm. because it seemed like a safe way to proceed, but it was it placed me in a position of unreconcilable conflict. Now I wasn't just conflicted between identity and and physical body. I was now conflicted with my personal identity and the identity I was being told I had as a son of God and a male priesthood holder and, you know, someone trying to get to the other end of the whole plan of salvation yeah, <laughs> to get to the big kingdom at the end of the rainbow. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, there's a lot of pressure there. Mm-hmm. And what I describe is each of my and this is probably true of many of us, but each of my life decisions um, initially put me into, um, for example, an analogy, a prison cell of my own making in which each subsequent life decision caused the walls to become thicker, the bars to become stronger, the door to become less um, penetrable and, you know, I'm talking about a point in life now where I'd been married for several years and I was 
following my professional course. I was raising, helping to raise four little children and, you know, doing all the things that somebody who's a 20-something should be doing. Um, and yet finding myself more and more kind locked. of locked, locked into in. <laughs> to a circumstance that I knew was... I knew, I thought, I perceived as being right and righteous mm -hmm. and uh, and yet was more and more stifling. So fast. Can, can I just say yeah. something I'm thinking because I want to validate what you're saying right okay. now because you're putting a lot of responsibility on how you built this cell for yourself. But I'd like to acknowledge that institutions and individuals built that cell for you. You can't, you can't blame yourself for all of that. You were actually sort of pushed in that cell. I'll accept that. <laughs> well, that... I, mean, I just don't, I just want you, I know this is painful to hear because that was also my religion. Right. That you, I don't want you to feel accountable or any emotional for building a cell that pretty much you were forced into. Yeah, and... At that time and place, I, did I did I walk in or was I thrown in? I walked in, okay. <laughs> and I walked in because I didn't know what else to do. Right. And if I was eighteen today in twenty twenty two, pretty chance I wouldn't have walked in mm -hmm. because there would have been options available to me. And I was bright enough to be able to know that if those options existed, I could have followed a path that would have been a much healthier one mm -hmm. and not stepped into the cell. So even, let's take the church out of it. Right. Um, you're in your 20s. Right. So even at this point in your life, you'd never heard of a transgender person or that it was possibility that... you know, you could transition. I was either naive, clueless, or disconnected <laughs> from information that probably existed in some form, but I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, I think at that time, because I was born in 1960, you just didn't know? We didn't know. It yeah. wasn't available. Um, if I lived in San Francisco or New York City, um, I might have been able to be exposed to something, but it probably wasn't attractive, mm -hmm. you know, in those days. Um, for I don't think it was understood, even if you heard about it, yeah, you know? Yeah, it wasn't. And um, sorry, I keep railroading your story. No, just, I, I have I'm, all these thoughts in my mind. I, I appreciate what you said too about the prison cell because no one's ever said that to me before. Everybody's been willing to say, Oh, wow, yeah, you did that to yourself, didn't you? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wasn't alone in that. I get it. <laughs> you might have went in, but you had lots of stones to build right. a fortress. Right. So. We're up to a point in time now. We're married about 10 years, and the, um, the LDS Church issued the Proclamation on the Family, which is uh, a document that the church produced um, full of policy points, some of which were understood to be doctrinally profound signed by the first presidency of the church, the three leaders of the church, and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So 15 leading men that I sustained through my actions and, and efforts as prophets, seers, and revelators said, this is the word of God. 
and it talked about male and female roles and i was a you know a priesthood leader at that time in my in my congregation and i started studying that document carefully and teaching it to the men in in, uh, in my unit and at the same time spiraled deeper and deeper into what i understand now was a serious gender dysphoric breakdown and this would have been around march of 1996 about six months after that proclamation was issued when um, i was attempting to get to get myself prepared to go to work and which entailed a white shirt and tie just like it did later in my life <laughs> yeah. and um, the house was empty for various reasons and i collapsed on the living room floor and just cried out in kind of an attitude of prayer, but in just a, a call um, to wh whoever might feel me. And I had, a, I had a, a great experience always with prayer in my life, but this case, it was just a cry out. I cannot do mail anymore. And I struggled at that point with um, suicidal ideation. I had a plan. Um, I just stopped short of following through on that plan that day um, because I knew I loved my family and they loved me. I knew that God, as I understood God, loved me. And all I could conclude was I can't do mail anymore. So I thought, well, okay, that means I'm not going to do anything. So I picked myself up off the floor after a while and went up to bed and climbed under the covers and that's where I was found later in the day just pretty much unable to function for several weeks because it was so overwhelming um, and at that point if I had any information if I had any vocabulary to use when I started meeting with an LDS family services therapist at that time um, to try to figure out what in the world happened to me, I would have wanted to explain just how incredibly difficult it was to continue on this pathway of trying to be the male and to fulfill the roles that I've been, I'm taught that I need to fulfill and to live this life that's, for me, a, a fallacy. But I didn't have those words. I didn't know what to say. Um, all that they could conclude was I probably needed to make some changes in my life. And um, the time I wound up being unable to function turned from weeks into months. And um, I left my employment at that time and the architectural practice that I was in. And, and within a little bit of time, got myself pulled back together. It took several months. Did your wife at the time know what was know going what on with me? No. No. Because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to explain it. Um, I was also scared to death that if I could figure out how to describe it, that, you know, there would be challenges beyond what I could imagine. Fallout. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fallout. But I was really in a position where I really just couldn't put, even put my finger on it as to what was going on. 
and we're breaking out the tissues for the <laughs> listening audience. We're, we're all wiping our eyes at this point. But um, several months later, I made the decision that I wanted to kind of put my life back together and get things moving again. And this was another one of these critical crossroads rather than um, really come to terms with what my challenge was. I buried it all again and started down the pathway of being that productive male provider, priesthood holder, church member. And I wanted to be a church employee. And so we were in upstate New York at the Why? time. Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> the people with the Kleenex want to know why. <laughs> well, that's a bit of a long story. But um, in the uh, in the LDS church, uh, we're provided something, usually when we're young, called a patriarchal blessing. And... A church patriarch, an elderly man holding authority to give these types of rev, revel, revelationary <laughs> types of blessings to individuals, someone who didn't know me at all, put his hands on my head at the time I was a freshman architectural student, and I'm not even sure we talked much about my education or what I was doing, and one of the things he blessed me with was that if I gained my education and used my talents, I would be able to bless people inside and outside the church and become a vessel in the hands of the Lord to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And occasionally when I read that in subsequent years, I thought, there's no way. <laughs> there mm -hmm. is absolutely no way. But at this point in 1996, when I was like, okay, my, my slate's been wiped clean. I need to rebuild my life. That message and that blessing hit home to me that if I'm going to work to fulfill that, I need to be willing to put myself in a position where maybe they can use my, they talents. Can use my talents. Yeah. And I knew that it wasn't practicing building office buildings in Albany, New York any longer. I, I I gained the tools that I needed to be able to practice. And, and so, you know, I started interviewing with, with, with the church physical facilities offices in the East. And that led me to finally interviewing with um, physical facilities people in Salt Lake City. And I never wanted to live in Utah. Um, Join the club. It was <laughs> it, being an Easterner. And living in a time when the general authorities of the church, the leaders of the church were teaching, it's no longer time to gather together with the saints. It's time to gather where you were planted, right? Okay, Zion is where the Lord has planted you. And so for me, Zion was in upstate New York and New England because that's where I was planted and that's where I was growing. And I wasn't going to move to Utah because I wasn't needed there. I didn't anymore we want to go there right <laughs> um, i'd been there when i was in the missionary training center and that was enough wasn't anything appealing to me so but anyway well, I wait now 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 <laughs> to be fair you cannot judge utah by the missionary training center <laughs> that's a prisoner <laughs> well i was very familiar with prison cells so yeah, that felt very very accommodating very familiar huh? yeah we'll talk about that later because i helped fix that problem um but 
I had one of these experiences where it's like, no, this is what I need to do. And so we packed up our family once I got a job offer from church headquarters and we moved to uh, Utah and I started over again in that life that was safe and respect respectable and was going to bring me accolades and acceptance and an eternal salvation an eternal salvation i mean might as well put it out it's all of the yeah all the uh the emerald city at the end of the rainbow it's all there um and boy golly i was good at it (laughs) because we no sooner got our house built in uh in uh in tooele where we raised our family but that I was called to be a bishop and a bishop oversees a congregation of three to 500 people called a ward. And I was, I was the guy in charge and I did that for five years. And, um, right after that, I was called assigned to be a stake president and a stake president has responsibility for seven to 11 or 12 of these individual congregations with all these bishops reporting up to the stake president. Um, when I was called as the stake president, the uh, church leader who uh, was responsible for ordaining me to that told me basically that out here in our town, I was the president of the church. and I was all that the people needed to look to, to you know, so by golly, I was this—I was the senior church person in in our community. Um, simultaneously at work, um, I went from being a manager to a director pretty quick, and wound up in charge before I knew it of uh, the meeting house standard plan program for the church for the entire world. About two years after I got to Salt Lake. Wow. And I thought, holy cow. I'm really I, on a good path. I'm, I, I'm I, on a path. I'm on a path. And not only that, but in no time at all, that patriarchal blessing promise mm, finds, fulfilled. finds some fulfillment. Because suddenly the, the meeting house designs that we created in my office were being built in every corner of the world. Wow. And I thought, this is pretty cool. And uh, and it was pretty cool being a bishop. It was hard work. It was hard work, you know, running the things that I did at work. It was hard work as my kids started turning into teenagers. I mean, it was just a life. (laughs) So can I revisit that? Yeah. I I don't know. I wrote down some things. Um, You you changed your word and you said called and you said assigned. Well, I wasn't sure that all of our audience would recognize what. Okay what a calling is. Uh, yeah, I just thought maybe you had a perspective on that because we're taught in the church that all callings are, you know, called directly from God. Mm-hmm. Even if you work in the nursery with two-year-olds wiping noses, you're very important. Um, I just wondered in your experience if that word assigned seems more appropriate or maybe it was just for your audience, for our audience. I think it was for our audience, but I'm really deep thinking today. Yeah, you are. It's good. Um, but keep in mind that my, I, I lived in two parallel worlds at that point of time. I was, uh, 
an employee at church headquarters where we didn't have callings, we had assignments. Yeah. And I was going on this ecclesiastical track where we didn't have assignments, we had callings. But the two felt very, very similar. <laughs> and um, and also mutually supportive of each other. Right. I, I was pretty much told that they showed up to our stake looking for a new stake president and they were told that the director of temple construction was a member of the stake and it mm-hmm. kind of you know put the target on me that Bolstered i was your credibility i was the next you know leader of the church in in our community and then on the other hand because i was serving in priesthood callings in my in my community the leaders in church headquarters had more confidence in me to give me positions of responsibility as an employee so in this culture, the two you had lots of clout really support each other. <laughs> you were very, very important. <laughs> and but then it got better. You know, I became a stake president and almost simultaneously was asked to move from meeting house design and construction to temple design and construction. Oh, oh. you and graduated. I graduated to like really important stuff. And, and so temples in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are the most sacred buildings um, that our membership, who are worthy, again, have an opportunity to attend and obtain the highest ordinances of the church. Um, and that attendance may be once in a lifetime or may be returning and and performing uh, work by proxy. But the temples were special places, whereas our church meeting houses were locations where um, regular Sunday worship would occur and and activities with families and, and so forth during the week. So in terms of architectural importance in the church, meeting houses, you know, are relatively pedestrian um, temples are considered holy places. Well, and, and the construction of temples is so much more elaborate. It's true. Um, and I felt entirely unqualified to uh, to be suddenly put in charge of all that because there were men who had been designing and building temples from the time I was a child who were suddenly reporting to me, and it was awkward. Yeah. And I was 20 to 30 years younger than them. Um, But there I was. And all of a sudden, I'm traveling all around the world, meeting people and seeing temple sites and helping to choose temple sites and designing buildings that are historically appropriate, uh, culturally appropriate for each area, because each temple became very unique and custom to its locale and the symbology of the local culture. And I'm all over the world and I'm thinking that promise has been fulfilled again a second time. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about that blessing. I wrote two words down. It could have been a conflict and also a comfort to see that blessing being fulfilled. Well, it was hard work. <laughs> yeah. And and it cost me it caused me to feel, you know, rejoicing that I was on a path that was so it mostly brought you comfort divinely like seen fulfilling my <laughs> blessing yeah I mean some could say it's self-fulfilling prophecy you know somebody yeah, tells you you're going to be an astronaut 
yeah. and, and you work really hard and you become an astronaut. Um, I didn't, it, yeah, I, I didn't think it was possible and suddenly it, it had happened twice. Yeah. And, um, so anyway, as that's all bopping along about 15 years had transpired since my breakdown in 1996 and um, I'm finding myself so we're like in 2011 10, I'm doing 2010 my math. 2011 exactly you're exactly right 15 years had transpired in essence what happened was I wound up hospitalized for about 11 days with an unknown malady that uh, caused me to be kind of like trapped in bed <laughs> with nothing more to do than to think. And I started thinking a lot about, you know, I guess what it did was it gave me a chance to pause and to take stock. And I thought a lot about what I liked about my life, what was going well, but also a lot about what I didn't like, what I felt uncomfortable about in my life. And I left that hospital when I finally <laughs> was deemed worthy to go, um, knowing that I had some things I had to change in my life, and I, things I needed to uncover and explore. And over the course of the next several months, that exploration appropriately, inappropriately, intentionally, accidentally caused me to unearth, exhume, if you will, my gender identity again. And sometimes we say in transgender circles that the toothpaste left the tube um, and it wasn't going back in this time. Um, I had opened Pandora's box and the genie was out. <laughs> you know, all the, different, uh, all the different analogies. But I realized that the struggles I had with how I felt about myself personally not how I was performing for the outside world, but how I felt about myself personally and how I was struggling with my attitude and my um, treatment of others and so forth had everything to do with the fact that I was still denying my true identity. And so I pretty much gave myself permission to cross the line and to look and to see. And I started finding what I couldn't find as a as a young adult or as a as a teenager there's information out there now and a pathway forward that didn't exist before and um, i was kind of late to the game even to finding these things you know by 2011 mm -hmm. but you know i hadn't been i didn't have the time or the willingness to cross that line and look before right. now i was looking now i discovered that transgenderism exists that gender dysphoria is real and felt by people and that although at the time it was classified as a, a mental illness but it was real and I even found Latter-day Saints who experienced it as I did I had thought for the longest time like so many folks do that I surely must be the only person in the world who feels the way that I do because no one ever wrote about it. No one ever told stories about it. You didn't even see people on the news that you could ridicule who felt the way that I did. Um, suddenly, I found community of people that felt the way that I did and that there was a way forward where um, emotional help, 
mental health, medical help, um, social transition was a possibility, medical transition was a possibility. All these things suddenly were possible. And I went through 2011 gaining um, kind of logical and emotional self-acceptance that indeed, yes, this is who I am. This is my circumstance. I am transgender. Problem was I'm still serving the church as the director of everything, <laughs> temple-wise, and still serving as stake president. So Laura Lee, I, I am thinking about when you were bishop and stake president. I have to say, like, when my son came out in 2011, for some reason, my husband and I, which we had never went to a leader before for any of our problems, because we solved them ourselves, but we felt really um, like we should go to them and share with them that we had a gay son, because somehow we felt like they would give us the counsel we needed to move forward. Our story is super messy, but I'm just going to say that um, that's one of our biggest regrets that we did that. That you went to a leader. Yeah. A, a church leader. By sitting here with you, I have to feel like if I would have sat in front of you, that we would have gotten a different response. So I'd like to revisit, I don't know, I just when you were talking, I just, I would like you to give me five distinct descriptive words that describe you as a bishop and a stake president. Sure. And my sense is, is that I'm not going to come up with five individual words, but perhaps five paragraphs <laughs> that are descriptive. Give it to us. Okay. Um, and, and so that there's kind of context for this, um, leaders in you know, in these local congregations of the LDS Church are, are lay leaders who are identified for various reasons to serve for a time period as a lay leader and receive nearly no training whatsoever, very little guidelines on how to serve in their callings other than to pray and study the scriptures and the handbook and use inspiration. And that makes probably a hundred percent of those who serve as church leaders completely ill-prepared and ill-qualified to do the kinds of things that ward members, stake members expect from them. Mm -hmm. And from the very beginning, I had a, an extremely healthy recognition <laughs> of that fact. Mm -hmm. um, I'm afraid that it's it's our sad experience that when some men get um, some authority, as they suppose, that it goes to their head and they think they've got all the answers. Um, that's not possible. So I guess the first thing um, that in terms of describing how I was as a church leader was, um, yeah, I was health, a healthy level of being overwhelmed and humble um, and recognizing that I didn't have the answers for anybody. Um, I also took notice, since I'm not from around this, you know, the Utah area, that um, Utah Mormons tended to trust their leaders implicitly, tended to uh, 
you know, the active ones, tended to expect that their leaders would tell them everything they needed to do and know in their lives um, without giving it much thought on, on their own. And I found that quite distasteful um, and wholly inappropriate. So it doesn't surprise me that in your family, you pretty well always took care of your own needs, but you weren't, at least from my experience, you weren't the majority. The majority wanted a bishop who would tell them everything they needed to do, what job interviews to go on, what what kind of car to buy, whether they should build a fence on their property, you know, just crazy, yeah. crazy stuff. I always had a very, and I'm not from Utah, so, right. you know, we met in the Bay Area and we lived in Southern Cal, Texas, Cleveland. I always had a very high respect for leaders and never wanted to take their time, Yeah, you know, realizing they had families, they had jobs, yeah. and that also that God could speak to us directly <laughs> to solve our own problems. Right. I didn't really need. And the shocking thing is you understood that, but so many don't. Yeah. And then I feel sorry for leaders. Yeah. And, you know, that was, it was more of like. paid enough. Yeah. We, we didn't get paid at all. Zero. And, yeah. Um, the blessings were great, I suppose. But um, <laughs> the, um, the reality is in terms of this, this kind of recognition that you know I didn't have people's answers yeah. that you know all I could offer was my own experience in how I found answers to my questions and to really teach that principle of self-reliance and self-spiritual alliance reliance um, oh. that uh, that at least as we were in believing church members, you could go to the Lord and counsel with uh, with the Lord and receive guidance in your life through the Spirit, through the gift of the Holy Ghost that we enjoy, um, and, and, and how to think things through together as a couple or as a family. Um, I, I taught those processes and I never answered anybody's questions. <laughs> I just like intentionally didn't answer questions for folks um, because I wanted them to, it was far more important that they learn how to answer their own questions. And I did not want to be responsible for offering an answer, even if it was in my opinion, and to have them come back and say, well, we did what you said, Bishop, and you know, our house burned to the ground or whatever. Right. Um, wasn't because I was chicken. It's just I think that was my role. My role was to, you know, to provide what support I could. But I wasn't the answer. Yeah. I wasn't that source. Um, and so I guess that's that's one. Yeah. Well, I got I got two out of it. Oh, what did you, you get two? Said. Good. I that did. Makes it further along then. <laughs> you, you were a humble leader. You also were empowering to those that came into your yeah. office. You yeah. empowered them that they could find their own answers. They didn't. You are not a crutch. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think if we want to find three more, um, I was, <clears throat> I served for, what, 14 years in one of those two callings, um, both of whom could have had um, responsibility to preside over disciplinary councils where members of the church who have committed sin 
may wind up receiving church discipline, um, which could include being excommunicated or having their name taken off the rolls of the church punitively or other lesser versions of, uh, of uh, punishment from their church leader. And in the course of 14 years, I only held one such meeting. So I guess this next idea is that I was not the punitive church leader, you know, that wanted to enforce rules, standard of living. So the third, I'm coming up with the words as you speak. Mm -hmm. You're a compassionate leader. I would do anything to help someone in a loving way to find a place of peace mm -hmm. and and satisfaction in their life where mm -hmm. and and I believe very firmly that living according to the teachings instructions of the church was a place where you know peaceful life could be found mm -hmm. you know so I, I, I taught the path mm -hmm. but I never went after ones who anyone who was straying from the path other than say hey come with me walk with me sit with me Let, let's talk that's so beautiful for for one I don't believe in the excommunication process or disfellowship I don't think Christ is in those rooms or in those discussions not not the God that I believe in right and yeah from the beginning I didn't I didn't want to do that I didn't want to be part of that I would sit with someone forever in my office and talk with them and work with them and never want to take them in the next room and subject them to that so I'm coming up with another word yeah you have great empathy for people Probably true. Yeah, probably true. So your path through life has been committed, even in good and bad ways, committed to stay in the closet, committed to follow this path, committed to be the best in everything that you do. A lot of determination. A lot and of self Oh, sorry. No, we're not doing six words. You can only have five. Oh, integrity. Uh, we have seven. That's, that's another important one is integrity because <clears throat> for good or evil, I was always challenged as a child, as a teen in the home I grew up in. If I said something or thought something, I dang well better be able to back it up. Oh. And uh, there was no place for fibbing or lying or even not understanding something thoroughly. <laughs> Well, I think that characteristic in humans, like if, if I have a friend that has integrity, I feel pretty safe. Yeah. Whether they tell me things I don't like or not, I know they have integrity and that I'm safe with them. Yeah. And I think as an adult, I just, I couldn't live any other way. And that kind of comes back to living, You're... living an inaccurate presentation. Yeah. So because no... I determined to be full of integrity and I wasn't presenting myself with integrity. So now we'll jump up to like 2011 when you decided after you were sick for what 10 days mm -hmm. that this is the moment like you have to have integrity and that 
Thank goodness for Google, because then you started to understand that you weren't the only one. I started reading um, stories about individuals who were transgender and what their transition entailed. I started studying what um, the World Health Organization offers in terms of the pathway for um, transgender health care and emotional support and so forth, and to realize that all of those things existed. So by the latter part of 2011, I'm pretty well convinced that this is me and this is the path that I should pursue, except for one important thing. I hadn't gone to the Lord about it. Mm. And so here's how it happened. Um, one of the things that I, I did in my position as a director of design for temples is lead teams all over the world to study the architectural history of every area where we planned on building a temple. And on that particular occasion in November of 2011, it took us to Lisbon, Portugal. And on the flight over, the overnight flight to, uh, to Lisbon from Salt Lake, um, I'm I don't fit in airplane seats very well, so I don't sleep very well. So I stayed up all night and journaled into my iPad or telephone, I can't remember which, and basically wrote a personal treatise explaining for best I could at that time why I knew myself to be transgender. And, you know, just get that all out of my system and onto a document. And I, I got to the hotel in Lisbon and I had when I traveled at that point because I had given myself permission to explore my gender identity I had a habit of dressing authentically as Lori in the hotel room by myself and I had this document and I was laying on the bed reading it and I just got the impression that I needed to approach God in prayer as Lori and find out what the divine mind had for an answer for me. Uh, yeah, I, I think this about myself, but where's God at? Um, and so, you know, I slipped down onto the floor on my knees, still presenting as Lori. I'd never done this before. And basically, Heavenly Father, this is Lori. And I have pretty well figured out that I'm transgender and dot, dot, dot. I was not sure if the room was going to blow up or what was going to happen. But what happened was beautiful and calming because I felt more than heard the joy on the other side of the veil that I had finally accepted myself as they created me to be as they had always known me to be and they were happy that I'd finally caught up and there was joy and rejoicing and I don't think I said another word in that prayer other than maybe a thank you and an amen now I knew for certain that I was in the right place I was on the right path and that became very helpful because it wasn't too long after that that I started facing some serious pushback as I started coming out that I needed to rely upon that knowledge 
um, I, I had one other complimentary experience several months later in the summer of 2012. Um, and I was, I was doing what I did every day as I got ready for work, got all dressed and everything. And the last thing I'd do before I go out the door would be to have personal prayer in the quiet of, uh, of my room. And I was praying about whatever on earth I was supposed to be doing that day, you know, as, as we have been taught to do. And almost as an interruption of my thoughts, the voice came into my mind. You're a beloved daughter of heavenly parents. And that wasn't what I was praying about. That was almost by interruption. And before I could even acknowledge that I felt so wrapped by divine love at a level that I had never felt before that I just, I just knelt there and cried because I felt that intense love for just a very short moment that I think is ultimately available to all of us at some point in a future day. But the assurance was there that I'm a daughter of heavenly parents. And uh, I go can't ahead. imagine. Can't imagine. I I just feel like at that moment that that cell that you had built and others had built for you was just completely demolished. Well, in one way, yes. I think these ex these two experiences I've just described gave me the key to the door. Cell was still there. I got up off my knees that morning and still went to work and presented as male. And I was still in the process of coming out to a few family and friends as transgender to varied responses. And it was difficult. Um, it became a lot more difficult a couple months later in late part of 2012, 10 years ago now, when I got called into uh, the office of one of the 70, one of the uh, general authority 70s of the church, who attempted for 20 minutes to get me to confess my sin to him. And uh, I had no idea what he was after. Finally, he let on that the general authorities, the brethren, mm -hmm. had learned that I believed myself to be transgender. The word had gotten back. Mind you, I'm still a sitting stake president. I'm still designing and constructing temples and reporting to the First Presidency on a monthly basis in person um, at that point. And they were really concerned. So I went through a series of interviews, I think about 11 within a very short period of time with um, senior church officials who ultimately decided to release me as stake president without making a scene, which I'm grateful for, and to keep me at that time as an employee, but on probation with constraints that prevented me from ever doing anything to mitigate my dysphoria. And that went on for four more years. Wow. Um, but yeah. in those circumstances, these senior church leaders were doing the best that they could to understand my circumstances 
in a year and a day and age when at that time they still didn't understand gender identity issues at all and all they had you might say they still don't yeah i was gonna say <laughs> do you think they've caught up but they hadn't even begun to pronounce the word transgender right. at that point and all they had was kind of their teachings at the time from the mormons and gay website as such and tried to apply them to me and it didn't fit because gender identity and sexual orientation are two entirely different things um but what i was able to counter to them was to share the experiences i've just shared with you the spiritual experiences and to bear my testimony that i knew that god knew who i was and whether they liked it or not that was that that was their issue but that was my testimony um <clears throat> uh once was taught that you can't refute someone's pure testimony and so oftentimes we would just have to part company funny thing is they frequently would admonish me president hall go back and reread the proclamation on the family yeah. see what it says and so what it says in the first couple paragraphs apart from some of the other things that have been weaponized is that gender is an essential characteristic of our pre-mortal mortal and eternal identity and i read that profuse i read that so many times Ten years later, I can still quote it. Yeah, I'm impressed. Or not. Because... I've tried to forget that whole proclamation. Because that line rings perfectly true to me. I have always been pre-mortal, mortal, and will always be female gender identity. I, that is an essential characteristic of who I am. The challenge is, the mistake is something that happened in utero during my physical body creation that's distinct from my etern eternal gender identity and using terms that apply to other things that occur um, in utero could be simply considered a birth defect and something that happens in a natural process where hormones and biology and genetics and epigenetics and all of those things mix together and occur but i'm not broken yeah. i'm whole because i have this eternal gender identity i love that doctrinal principle strangely enough until october of 2019 when a member of the first presidency comes out and says, well, what we meant by the word gender was sex assigned at birth. Oh, I didn't know that. So the handbook now says, the church handbook that came out in 2020 says, the word gender in the family proclamation is to be understood as sex assigned at birth. So if you can imagine that we're allowing medical personnel who, many of whom aren't Latter-day Saints and aren't gifted with priesthood and revelation and may not even be men, God forbid, oh. 
oh. to determine our eternal gender or sex of who I was as a spirit in the eternities before being born on this earth. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, you know, as missionaries, we all taught this, you know, one of the reasons we come to earth, two reasons. One is to come to earth to get a body Mm -hmm. so that we can have experiences and become more like God. I have always felt that one spirit is much more important than the shell that we get when we come to earth. I have a lovely little daughter that we adopted from Ukraine, Crimea, years ago who, because of things that happened while she was um, in utero with a mom who apparently used alcohol heavily, as is often the case culturally there, as well as perhaps other things, is less able than other kids her age and has special needs. And I do not, for a moment, believe that what happened to her in her in utero creation has anything to do with the amazing spiritual person that she is or will be in eons going forward. I 100% agree with you. So tying together both my uh, ecclesiastical experience with this with this discovery with this confirmation of my gender identity um, we talk in the church about serving the Lord and sometimes serving the church with all our heart might mind and strength nowhere in that list of characteristics of our service does it say we serve with all our genitals mm. The only thing that distinguishes a holder of the priesthood from a woman who's not allowed to hold the priesthood is the particular configuration of some very small biological parts. Because my heart, might, mind, and strength have always emanated from the female spirit that we've now concluded is my eternal gender identity and and never once while holding the keys of the priesthood and presiding over wards and stakes did i ever check between my legs when i was making a decision to lead the church well that was probably a good thing right right uh, is this a trick question or trick, <laughs> trick not, comment it's not a trick I'm comment like, i've never checked either the realization of the fact that there was <laughs> nothing about my physical biology that mm-hmm. qualified me to lead or serve in the church right. therefore what it's ridiculous that presiding and leading in the church is limited males only there i've said it i'm i felt it and i completely agree with you from my own experience yeah even though at times during that time of service i refused to accept my truth god knew exactly who i was and if we believe in inspiration and revelation that comes to those who are called to lead then god called 
this sister, this woman, to preside over a ward and then to preside over a stake and sustained my efforts with inspiration that bless lives. My brain just like exploded in such a good way. Because I actually wanted to visit that with you, but now you've explained that. I mean, God called you knowing you were a woman. And there was... Otherwise, it was a mistake on the part of somebody. And are they willing to admit that? I don't think so. No, let's just... I'm going to say this one was God. My own experience was that I walked with personal revelation to guide not only my life and my family's life, but the efforts of our wards and stakes and the efforts that I was responsible and assigned to do in my service at church headquarters in the design and construction of facilities. The spirit was always there supporting me in that. And I was always me. About the same time I received that spiritual confirmation in the divine love Mm -hmm. that I was a daughter of God. I was on vacation with my family up at Bear Lake and I woke up early which was not something I normally would do when I was at Bear Lake. And the words came into my mind immediately, read the book of Esther. And I thought, wow, it's probably been a while since I read the book of Esther. It's kind of one of the smaller books buried in the middle of the Old Testament and isn't known for its big doctrinal pronouncements. And, you know, so we don't use it as much. So I thought, okay, I'll be obedient because that's kind of my thing. And so I I got up, went out in the front room and sat down with my scriptures in the quiet of the house because everyone else was dutifully sleeping in because we were on vacation. And I read the book of Esther. And for those who don't recall the story, the backstory is, is that while the Jewish people, while the Hebrews were in captivity in Babylon under a Gentile king and had been there for several decades, um, pretty much in captivity, it came to pass, <laughs> using that phrase, that the king needed a new queen and selected Esther, who was a Hebrew, to be his next queen, not realizing she was one of those Jewish people. Not long after that, his advisor, who was jealous of the prominence of the Jews in the kingdom in Babylon, managed to convince the king that, paraphrasing, Monday morning, all the Jews are going to be gathered up and killed. And uh, King went along with that and made that decree, and the King's decrees could not be changed. And so Esther had an uncle, Mordecai. Mordecai was a leader among the Jewish people in their community, and he came secretly to Esther and said, we need your help. We're all going to be destroyed. You might even be destroyed, Esther, um, if you don't get the king's ear and change his mind. And uh, Esther said, "I, there's nothing I can do if I enter the king's chamber without being asked. He can take my life immediately. Apparently how things worked back then. Um, and then Mordecai said, giving her uh, empowerment and strength, Who knoweth but what thou hast been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this? And so the end of the story was Esther was brave and she talked to the king and the king 
acquiesced and the Jews were saved and the advisor was the one who was killed and everything worked out great. When I read the the thought that Mordecai offered, who knoweth but what thou hast been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this, I knew that meant me. That was why I was woken up to read the book of Esther. The Lord was saying, you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And I felt like totally empowered and I was going to change the church and change the world and everything was going to be right in the world because I was going to march in there and save my people at the risk and peril of my own well-being in life. And so I did. I tried. <laughs> and I suppose I'm still trying. So I'm sure, you know, there's so much to this story. Um, are you still a member of the church? So I mentioned I was four years as an employee after they knew I was transgender. They like they sort of demoted you, right? Or uh, did I, you have the same? Position? I still I still moved along in in the same circles, but under probation had several constraints that I couldn't do. I couldn't have online support group activity. I couldn't go to conferences. I couldn't dress as a woman at all anywhere ever, twenty four seven. I was never to mention that I was transgender at work or to anyone else for that matter. Um, over time, I broke all <laughs> of those all constraints. <laughs> um, but um, I, reached, I reached the point where several things were in my mind at the same time. I knew that going forward, I was going to probably be fired at some point. And if I could avoid being fired, if I could figure out how to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish and not be fired and reach the point where I could also actually retire with my benefits in place, that would be the, a safe way to navigate this journey. So what was it that I wanted to accomplish? You'll recall that in March of 2015, the church helped produce the legislative action known as the Utah Compromise. And the Utah Compromise protects housing and employment for LGBTQ persons. Well, narrowing it to my particular need, my concern was employment protection for a transgender employee who wants to transition socially and remain an employee. Problem with the Utah Compromise and why it's called a compromise is the church built in their own exit strategy mm -hmm. that allowed them to dis continue to discriminate legally against transgender me. I knew that, but I was determined, like Esther, that I was not going to leave that office building without asking the question on my behalf and hopefully on behalf of many who might follow will you church employer honor the medical and emotional and ethical principle built into the utah compromise to allow transgender employee me the accommodation of transitioning socially 
wasn't talking about surgery. I wasn't talking about any anything that might get their knickers in a knot. Can I transition socially and remain the good employee that you've enjoyed these past 20 years? I don't want someone's opinion. I want the answer from the Church Human Resource Committee, which is the First Presidency. My direct line boss, who is our department managing director, committed to me that he'd get that answer. The following Tuesday, the following Tuesday, my stake president asked to take my recommend away, which disqualified me from continuing to be an employee of the church. Mm. I never got the formal answer to my question. I think you did. I did. <laughs> I got the inf- Esther, you got your answer. <laughs> I got the informal backdoor answer. My uh, my life wasn't taken, but my employment was. Um, I was able to retire because I held off as long as I could, um, and I was able to, with twenty years of service and age fifty five, obtain retirement. And so I quickly retired before I was fired for lack of being worthy. Mm. quote unquote Mm -hmm. and then to your question did I remain a member member of the church well the day that I left church employment I sent all my mail clothes to the desert industry store and I started living full time as Lori Lee there was nothing else holding me back and and I started making all the legal and so forth changes that needed to be made to live authentically and that included attending my ward and stake meetings as Lori Lee. And that lasted uh, not quite a year before I was brought into a church discipline council myself amongst my friends who I'd served with in the very room where I had served and was excommunicated from the church. I, a- I was asked in that meeting, among other things, what did I want to have be the outcome of that meeting? And my response was, I only want to worship God according to the dictates of my own conscience, and my conscience confirms to me that I am female. And so that's what I desire. A few weeks later, after being excommunicated, I discovered they actually gave me what I asked for by putting me out of the church which I know was just an administrative action, not something that God did, I realized I have now the freedom to worship God according to who I am and how I feel. And so that's where I am in relationship to the church over these past five years. Well, I think um, you were Esther in this moment. You don't have to be in the church to be Esther, I think, reading that passage and realizing so many people know about you. I mean, I met Lori Lee at a North Star. Um, I went representing the Mama Dragons at that time, and I know you don't remember me, but I remember you. We sat in a circle. There was probably about 10 people, and you shared your story then, and what an honor it's been to sit in the studio and get caught up. I do remember that day well, and I was breaking a 
a, a, a constraint <laughs> <laughs> by even being at that conference telling my story. Yeah. Might have broke two rules <laughs> by doing that. No, three. I was dressed as Lori. <laughs> I can't remember if you were presenting as a woman or I was. Not. Okay. I was. Yeah. Well, rules are made to be broken. That's what I've always been told. Yeah. <laughs> By myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your story is um, so needed. And we feel so honored here at the Human Stories podcast room to to have you come and I think you've shared some very tender, some very sacred and some very personal experiences with us and I as the host want to thank you for that. I hope you have felt safe in this room. Given what I've been able to share, I feel very safe and free to be entirely vulnerable so I thank you Jill for giving me this opportunity. Absolutely. Well, we just sincerely want to thank you for coming in it must be exhausting telling your story over and over again but hopefully every every podcast or host brings out something different with Lori Lee Hall I, I think the reason why I like love to do these in person is the interpersonal energy that happens between the interviewer and myself that helps to draw out special elements of the story that I've never told before. So you have to listen to all of my interviews because all of them are unique and special depending on where the conversation flowed and the energy between the two of us that really has to happen within, you know, human touch. Yeah, when we're telling our stories, we have to feel somewhat safe, I think. Yeah. We really try in this studio, studio to not have an agenda but only validate our guest stories and that's you know when when I was asked to do this three years ago the name kept coming it has to be human stories it has to be human stories because as we all know we change and we become, become better if we sit in each other's stories so again thank you Lori Lee Hall for for being here with us today we wish you all the best and um I just, I just feel really prompted to send my love to all of my queer siblings that are listening and to their families and just hope that we can all do a little better to make place for all of God's creations. We're all really, really important. Exactly. And we all deserve to experience queer joy. Absolutely. So go take care of each other. And this is... Human Stories with Jill Hazard Rowe.